Well, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 21 through 43. If, if you don't have a Bible uh, in the pew in front of you, there should be a red hardbound book. That would be a Bible. Um, and so you can turn, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're going to turn to Mark chapter 5. Uh, and it will be on, if you're using that red Bible, it'll be on page 816. And so you can find our place there. We'll, we'll read that in just a minute. Well, living in our world, it doesn't take long to realize that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. As we look around, especially now in, in our time of day when we have access instantly to, to global news, to a bombing in Egypt within minutes after it's happened, we're, we're flooded over and over, day after day, with news of terror, of crime, of suffering, of destruction, just to name a few. It may seem like things are getting worse. It may seem like there, there once was a golden age. Back in the day, things weren't as bad. But the reality is, things have always been bad. Ever since Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, the world has been broken. Ever since that time, the world's been off kilter, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. And this, this brokenness, it's, it's as if there's a crack in everything, every relationship, every person, every, every system, there's a crack in it all. And, and this brokenness, it, it reaches from the widest scale, world hunger, the AIDS epidemic, ISIS, to the smallest scale, to, to personal disease or depression or a broken friendship. And when it comes to experiencing this brokenness in this fallen world, no one is exempt. No one. We all, everyone in this room, live in a fallen world, and we all live a life in a fallen world which always involves, from one degree to another, sorrow, suffering, confusion, just general messiness. That's the life, all of us, that's the life we live in our passage today, we're going to see that, that though the realities of suffering and sickness and death, though they're unavoidable and though they affect us all, we can't escape it, there is one, there's one who's greater than this suffering. There's, there's one who, who in our story, Jesus is presented as the one with authority. A few weeks ago, we saw his authority over the wind and the waves. He speaks, be still, and the wind and the waves obey him. And, and last week, we saw his authority over a demon-possessed man. He says, out, and they, they flee from possessing the man. Well, this week in our story, we're going to see his authority over disease and even death itself, which is why this is a fitting passage for a resurrection Sunday. And as the one who has authority over all of these things, as the one who would eventually endure suffering himself, Jesus shines forth in our passage as the one who is worthy of our worship and our affections. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, my hope is that you, that me, that, that we all would see, behold, and encounter the authoritative Lord, the one who's worthy of our affections. And as Mark has been working through his gospel, we see that, that he's the one who's able to bring the kingdom. He comes as the one. The kingdom is present with him. He's the one who is, who's able to restore all of creation. So this brokenness, it has a solution, and his name is Jesus. He's the one who's able to reconcile not only creation, he's not only able to fix creation, He's also able to reconcile God and man who have been broken, who've been separated. And so this is the one, this Jesus, who, who would eventually rise victorious over sin and death. Well, let's look at our passage, Mark chapter 5. You should be there, and you can follow along as I read verses 21 through 43. 
And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, that is Jesus, went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. For she said, if I, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Verse 35, and, and he was still speaking. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Well, it's a fascinating story. In fact, it's, it's two stories. So, so you see there's, there's a story of Jairus' daughter that, that starts out this account, but it's interrupted, and we have a second story, the, the story of the bleeding woman, and that story is introduced and concluded. Then he closes the Jairus story. So it's two stories in our passage, and, and Mark purposely sandwiches these stories together because there, there are a lot of similarities between these two. And so the, the outline, we don't have the, the PowerPoint this morning, but, but just if you're taking notes, there's, there's four sections. We see the desperate father and his dying daughter verses 21 through 24. Then we see the desperate woman in verse 25 through 28. Then the desperate woman is healed, verses 29 through 34. Then the dead daughter is raised in 35 through 43. So first we see a desperate father and his dying daughter. So our passage picks right up where we left off last week, and we saw Jesus. They, they went across the sea to the Decapolis, and, and there uh, across the Sea of Galilee, he is now, he's healed the man, he's cast out the demons. Now they've come right back to the Jewish side of the sea. And so this is where he spent most of his time thus far, and he's coming back to his home base. And so when he arrives, notice the crowd is waiting on him there. Here comes the teacher. Here comes the wonder worker. Let, let's see what he's going to do next. 
If you remember when he left the Decapolis, they're saying, get away from us. This is quite a different reception than he receives on the other side. And, and Mark immediately focuses on one man. Do you see there in verse 22? Focuses on one man. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. He would have been a man with authority, an administrator, an overseer of all that went out. Their place of worship was a synagogue, and he would have been one of probably a group of men who, who organized and, and took care of all that went on in the synagogue. He was a Jewish religious leader, which, which helps us to realize it's, it's dangerous to paint with broad brushes, right? We, we want to say, well, the Jewish leaders, they all rejected Jesus. Well, well here's one who didn't. Okay, so, so it's not all black and white. This, this was a Jewish l- religious leader who followed Jesus. So, so Jairus, he approaches Jesus and he falls at his feet, imploring him to help. In fact, we find out that, that he is in a helpless situation. His daughter is very sick, on the brink of death, and he can't do anything to help her. Even though he's a man that, that people view as, as one with authority, he's a respected man. He has no ability to, re, no ability to remedy the current plight that he's facing. He can't help his daughter. If you're a parent, there, there, there's nothing more helpless than, than seeing your child in pain or in danger and not being able to do anything about it. She's sick and he can't help her. He's helpless. So he implores Jesus, my, my daughter is sick. My little daughter, this term of endearment, my little daughter, the one that I love, is sick. We see a father's heart breaking as he sees his little girl dying. We're sympathetic with this man. Any parent here, you can relate, especially if you're a dad to a daughter. Your little daughter is sick. So this was Jairus' situation. So he comes to Jesus and he begs him, come, come lay hands on my daughter that she may be made well, that, that she might not die, but that she will live. And so Jairus, even in the fact that he comes to Jesus, recognizes that Jesus has the ability, or or may at least have the ability, to remedy his girl's situation. This man can help. And so verse 42, Jesus apparently adheres to the request and makes his way with Jairus to the place where his daughter is. Okay, so Jesus hears the request and they start making their way. And that's where Mark hits pause on story one and then introduces story two. So there in verse 25... The Jairus story is put on hold, and we're introduced to a whole, whole new situation, a second woman, second female, who is in dire need of help, much like the first girl we were introduced to. So in verse 25, we're introduced to a desperate woman. Though, though she's much older, there are similarities. Did you notice that at the end of the passage, Mark tells us that the little girl was 12 years old. This girl has been bleeding for 12 years. And so this woman has, 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 a, has a condition, she, she has a, a disease, and she's been suffering for 12 years. And she is, she's been suffering from an issue of blood for 12 years. One commentator notes, for 12 years, this woman has had the flow of blood, a chronic bleeding disorder of some kind, probably menstrual in nature. And so think about this. 12 years. As long as this, this first little girl has been alive, this second woman has been experiencing continual bleeding and notice she's not, she's not passive. She's not passive in her sickness. She's not thinking, oh, woe is me. Mark lets us know that she wanted to get better. In fact, she did all that she could. Verse 26 said that she had suffered much under many physicians. She'd probably been to every specialist in the region. All of them, and, and no one had any answers for her. He continues, Mark continues, she had spent all that she had. Every dime that she had ever inherited or, or been given, she had spent it all and she was no better, but she rather grew worse. So not only could, could no physician help her, when they tried to help her, they made things worse than they were initially. 
She has no more doctors to go to. Even if she did, she had no more money to spend to go to the doctors. She was in the worst shape of her life. And that's not all. Think about the cultural setting of this woman. I mean, it would be bad enough if, if it were here and now and that was the case. At least you could, maybe you could hide it. Maybe you could, you could still be cared for in your home. But, but here in the Jewish culture, there are very clear Jewish laws that would regulate cleanliness and, and uncleanliness. And so in a Jewish culture, blood was almost always unclean, especially blood that was evidence of a disease or a condition. And so the status of this woman's condition isn't something that could go unnoticed. She couldn't hide her situation from others. Twelve years, nonstop suffering. And so the, the reality is this woman would have been an outcast. If she had a husband, she wouldn't have one anymore. She would have been divorced long ago. If she was part of her family, not anymore. She would have been outcast, a sign of God's curse. She had been excluded from her family, from her community. She had been excluded from all religious activity. There's no way she could go near the temple, the, the place where they, they worshipped God and, and took part in rituals. And let's not forget a constant issue of blood, a type of bleeding taking place here, regardless of time or culture. It's embarrassing and shameful. And all of this, all of this because she suffered from a disease that she'd done nothing to contract. She couldn't help herself. She was a desperate woman. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's fair to say that she's even taking a risk that she's out and about among the crowd, right? Because, because being declared unclean, right, she was contagious. And so if, she come, if anyone comes in contact with her, right, she's not worse. She's, she's still contaminated. But they then, by nature of touching her, become unclean. This is certainly why she's probably trying to go unnoticed later in our story. Yet there she is taking a risk out among the crowd, fighting her way to Jesus. And so there, notice there in verses 27 to 28, Mark gives the logic, what, what, what her thoughts are, why she's making her way out. She'd heard reports about Jesus. So however, wherever she was, maybe she's on the side of the road or, or out, out, out in, the, in the wilderness, she hears reports about Jesus. Maybe she heard about the healing power, maybe, maybe about the case of leprosy in the temple or, or the paralytic man who had been made to walk, or maybe she heard about Peter's sick mother-in-law. We don't know what, what reports she heard, but Mark says she had heard reports about this man and recognized an opportunity, a chance, a, a glimmer of hope. Maybe this man can help me. It's a more than a maybe because notice there in verse 28, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. That's her logic. I've got to get to Jesus. And notice, her, her thinking is, no one has to know. I just got to go up, touch his garments, leave, go back home. I'll be, I'll be made well. No one will have to know. And so there in the transition between verse 20, 28 and 29, we assume that she did in fact make her way to Jesus and did in fact touch his garment because in verse 29 it says, immediately the flow of blood dried up. So she touches the garment, okay? She touches it, maybe she was on her hands and knees reaching for it. Maybe she just walks right up, touches it. Whatever, however she gets there, she touches it, and immediately the flow of blood dropped, dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed. So she knows immediately what has happened and who has caused it to happen. Immediately, without a word, without, without drawing attention to herself, without making a scene, she was healed. She, she got what she came for. At this point, she certainly doesn't think anyone else knows what had taken place. I imagine that once she realizes what's happened, she's been healed and she, she feels in her body what's happened, she, she probably turns around, heads back home. Maybe she's already thinking about what she's going to do with her new life. Wow, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm better. But notice in verse 30, 
everything changes. Look what happens next. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Freeze. Slow motion. Can you imagine this woman? I mean, this isn't a small traveling party with a couple guys following. This is a crowd. They're they're, they're traveling. There are dozens, maybe even hundreds of people all moving with Jesus. And and they're all following, probably making their way to Jairus' house to see what's going to happen. And I assume that right at this point, stop. And then row after row, hit the guy in front of him and wait. And so everybody stops and Jesus says, who touched me? Luke's account tells us that everyone denied it. What, it wasn't me. Don't look at me. I, I imagine everyone. No, no, it wasn't me. In verse 31, Mark says, the disciples add in, adding a human element, a clear human element. You see the crowd pressing around you and yet you ask, who touched me? Translation, are you kidding me, Jesus? Are you serious? You, you want us to tell you who touched you? It's like when he tells them, go feed them. Right? When the, the, the multitude has come and they're hungry, he says, go feed them. Are you serious? And so here, Jesus, everyone's touching you. Everyone is. It's not one person. It's, it's everyone. In fact, Jesus, everywhere, all the time, people, crowds are following you and touching you. A better question, Jesus, would be who's not touching you. Verse 32, Jesus looked around to see who had done it. Now, now to, to understand this, let, let me make a few comments. First, it's possible that Jesus doesn't know who touched him. Okay, that's possible. Perhaps one of the, the limitations of, of God taking on flesh is an inability to, to know who touched him. That's possible. Okay? I don't think it's likely. I think more likely than that, I don't think Jesus had any doubt as to who touched him. I, I think he knows exactly who touched him. In fact, I think the very reason that he stops everything is because he knew precisely who had touched him. And so I think it's more about the woman that he asked the question than about his lack of knowledge. And then second, notice that Mark is making very clear that it wasn't this garment that healed the woman. Okay, this isn't some relic that needs to put in a museum, like a powerful, mystical, magical thing. It's not about the clothes. It's the power had gone out from Jesus, Mark says. It's Jesus, not his garment, that heals the woman. And so here she is, frozen. She hasn't come forward yet, but, but Jesus has stopped everything and inquired, who's touched me? And, and at this point, I want to ask, why not let her go? she's healed. No one knows. Just, just let her go. I think Jesus knew exactly who the woman was and exactly why she had sought him and touched him. And Jesus will not let her go without making it clear, without publicizing what exactly had happened and who exactly it had happened to. Okay, it's for her good that he's bringing her out, that he's calling her forward. And so verse 33, we see the woman knowing what had happened to her, Seeing that she couldn't go unnoticed, she came in fear and trembling, and she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She started 12 years ago, probably, maybe even earlier, but she tells him everything that happened, how she'd gotten there, why she'd come, that she'd touched him, and what had happened to her. She tells everything. There's no way out. She knows she can't go unnoticed, so, so she comes forward and she confesses. Now imagine, imagine what's going through her mind as, as, she, as she steps forward, as she makes her way. What, what's Jesus going to do? Is, is he angry at her? Is he going to revoke the healing? You didn't say, please, give it back. Is he going to rebuke her? I mean, think about this. She's unclean. She touches him. He's, he's a rabbi. He, he's going town to town. He's in the synagogues now. 
Is he ceremonial unclean? Is his ministry going to be delayed or postponed because of her? Will the life of this 12-year-old girl now be in jeopardy? Who does she think she is stopping him from going to heal a 12-year-old girl? All these thoughts, possibly. Not knowing what Jesus was up to, she falls down, she tells him the whole truth. Not only does Jesus hear the whole truth, but, but everyone around hears her story. And notice verse 24, what a, what a beautiful statement, verse 34. Not at all what she had expected. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Did you get that? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What, what a beautiful sentence. What a compassionate, gentle, merciful Savior. I mean, when was the last time that this woman had heard the word daughter addressed to her. By the way, this is the only time in the Gospels where this word comes from the mouth of Jesus. I mean, what a situation. What, what a right time. What a right individual to address with this word. She's included. Do you see that? Daughter. That means she has a family. She's part of something. She has value. She's included. What a powerful word. Daughter. But notice... It's, it's not just that he calls her daughter. He says, your faith has made you well. This, this entire sequence has, has been a display of her faith. I mean, she tried everything. She'd spent all her money and nothing had worked. Yet, yet here she is in the middle of this great throng of people having, she must get to Jesus just to touch him. This is, this is faith on display. And it worked. Her faith had made her well. And then Jesus continues, go in peace. It's not just a, a parting word. It's not just goodbye. She can go in peace. Jesus is telling her, depart with confidence. You've, you've been restored. You've been healed. You're, you're no longer subject to a, a damnable, devastating disease, but, but rather you have peace. One commentator says, go in peace here means more than just goodbye. It's not only an affirmation of this woman's healing, which is true, but it's much deeper. It's also her restoration to wholeness in the community of God. She's, she's not unclean anymore. Do you notice that, that when unclean people touch Jesus, he doesn't get unclean, they get clean. No more ceremonial regulations prohibiting her in worship. She could take part for the first time in 12 years in the religious practices of her people. And, and everyone who was there, from her town, her neighbors, her, her past relatives, they, they all knew who she was, and they all saw now, evidence before them, a clean woman. And now they recognize, yeah, she's clean. No wonder Jesus called her out. And so on this day, her interaction with Jesus changed everything. And so the desperate woman is healed. And as Mark concludes this scene, I mean, what, what, a, what, a, what a pretty beautiful picture. And it's easy to get involved with this woman and her miraculous healing that we forget the story that started this passage. It's, it's, it's easy to forget that in the midst of this great crowd, in the midst of this moving assembly, is a man named Jairus whose daughter is deathly ill. Right? He's there. He's seen all of this. And I wonder what's going through his mind as, as the crowd stops and Jesus asks this question and interacts with this woman. Perhaps he thought, Jesus, this woman, she's been bleeding for 12 years. Okay, another day is not going to hurt her. My daughter is dying, Jesus. Why are we stopping with her? Time is of the essence. Maybe that's what he's thinking. We, we don't know. But as Mark continues there in verse 35, we do learn that, that this delay was, was costly. 
In verse 35, Mark transitions back to the Jairus story, and it, it reads in verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, right, worst case scenario for Jairus, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble him anymore. What use is he now? She's, she's gone, Jairus. Come on home. We, we, started, we started the mourning and the wailing. Just, just, just come on home. Don't bother him. I mean, it's harder to imagine a greater contrast in emotions, right? We've just seen a woman of, of 12 years subject to disease healed and, and going in peace. And the very next moment, we turn to a sor- the sorrow of a devastated father. One's restored. One woman is restored while, while the next moment, a 12-year-old is taken, gone. Don't bother the teacher anymore, they tell Jairus. She's gone. The once bleak situation... It's now turned hopeless. And so according to these messengers that have come from the house, the, the restoration of this daughter was when, rendered impossible when she died. Makes sense. Mark continues, Jesus overhearing what they said. He doesn't even leave time for, for Jairus to respond, but, but it seems as though he immediately addresses the synagogue ruler. He says, don't fear. Don't be afraid, Jairus. Only believe. So that's what Jesus says when Jairus gets the word, your daughter's dead. Don't, don't be afraid, just believe. Now, now think about what Jesus is asking of Jairus. I mean, at first, Jairus only had to believe that, that Jesus was able to cure a dying girl, a, a really sick girl. Although that's, that's no, no small feat, it was certainly within the realm of possibilities. And Jairus had faith. Come on, come, please come see my daughter. It required faith, but, but now, upon hearing that his daughter is dead, Jairus is being asked to keep believing Keep believing, have faith that Jesus is able to remedy the situation. Jesus is asking Jairus to believe in a resurrection here. Don't be afraid. Now, apparently, Jairus obeys because there in verse 36 through 37, Jesus and a select number of his disciples, they make their way to the house where the girl has died. And so Mark paints the scene as as Jesus approaches. They come to the house, and and there's commotion, it reads. There's people weeping and wailing loudly. And and in that time and culture, all this commotion would have have been very common. It had been normal. In fact, they had professional mourners. And so someone like Jairus, who was a well-respected man, his wealth was was evidenced by the number of professional mourners that were there crying and wailing and making commotion. In fact, this, this... further confirms what Jairus has been told. His daughter is dead. They, they've started the, the proceedings, the, the death rituals. And so when Jesus gets to the house, we see in verse 39, he asks a pretty simple question, but then he follows up that simple question with a very confusing, we'll see, laughable statement. He says, why are you making a commotion weeping? Why are you crying like something bad has happened, Jesus asks. Obviously, Jesus, maybe you're new around here, but but a girl that used to live here, she's died. That this is what we do when someone dies, especially when it's a 12-year-old. Then Jesus says, she, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And they laughed at him, right? If we're there, we're, we're probably going to laugh. We're probably not going to believe and say, oh, 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 that's right. That makes perfect sense now. It's pretty obvious why they're laughing. She's dead, and, and this confused teacher thinks that she's only sleeping, now, Jesus' statement, it can be puzzling. Did, did he really think that she was only sleeping? Was, was she really only sleeping? Maybe some people say, no, she really was only asleep. Jesus means literally what he said, that she really was only asleep. And, and all that he does is he awakes her from, from this comatose state. She wasn't really dead, she was just sleeping. Now, 
It could be explained that way. I think it's pretty obvious that Mark and, and the other gospel accounts, they, they intend for us as readers to get the idea that this girl has really died because I think she really has died. I mean, she's dead. There's no ambiguity in the text concerning that. So, so I think it's helpful to understand her state. I don't think it's helpful to understand her state as some type of comatose ex- existence. I think she's dead, and I think Jesus knew she was dead. I mean, Jesus is presented as someone who's always in complete control of the situation. It, it would not seem fitting for him to be confused on this point. And so I think here, I think what Jesus is doing, he's, he's aiming to make a simple point. I think in this statement he's making this point, but I think in the entire account he's making this point, and that simple point is this, that with Jesus on the scene, there's no difference between sleep and death. I mean, as we saying, she, she's as good as asleep. I'm here. It's what she would tell Lazarus' sister. I'm the resurrection and the life. I mean, think about, think about it. If, if you see someone taking a nap, say they're at a distance, you can't, you can't see their breath, you can't see their lungs rising and falling, they're at a distance and you see them taking a nap. There's no difference between sleep and death. Right? You're not close enough to see their breathing. So the best way to know if they're dead or if they're just sleeping, other than walking up, but a way to know, maybe not the best way, is just to watch them. Set up a chair and watch them. And if they wake up, what does that mean? They're just taking a nap. If they lay there and they continue to lay there and they never get up, they, they've probably died. Right? So, so the difference between if you're napping or, taking, or if you're dead is, is whether you wake up. And I think Jesus' point is simply to say, I have authority over death. So, so death is never final. With Jesus on the scene, death never has the last word. This little girl, Jesus knows, is going to wake up. So obviously they laugh at him, knowing she wasn't simply sleeping, knowing that she's dead. Did they really think, did Jesus really think that they could misdiagnose something as clear as death? So then verse 40, the, the, the passage concludes, but, but he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. Remember, it's Peter, James, and John, so there's three of them and then the two parents, and they go in to where the child was, and taking her by the hand... He said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, rise up. Again, notice his words. Little girl, rise up. Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. Mark wants us to remember that. She's 12. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So just like that, immediately upon the word of this man, a dead girl wakes up. She's alive. The words of Jesus convey powerful truth. He speaks and it happens. And so Mark's final account displaying the authority of Jesus is the climax of them all. We, we've seen him calm the storm. The wind and the waves are no match for him. We've, we've seen the demonic possession, the legion of demons that were possessing and tormenting him. And they were no match for him. Disease, as we saw, the, the 12-year issue of blood was no match for him. But here, the climax, death itself, is no match for him. And so as we attempt to apply this story, the question I want to ask is, well, well Why? Why does it matter that Jesus has this authority? Why does, why does Mark write these accounts, and why does Mark put on display this authority of Jesus? You might say, well, it's to, to show he's, he's the promised one, the Son of God, which is true, but, but why does that matter? 
Why does it matter that that's what Jesus came as? That's who he came as? It, it matters because life in a fallen world pleads for something firm. Life in a chaotic world demands an anchor. And left to ourselves, we're, we're only passive bystanders being tossed to and fro amid storms and evil and disease and death. We're, we're just bystanders. We, we can't help ourselves. We're, we're helpless in a fallen world as we recognize this world's not as it should be and, and we're all suffering from it. Mark in his gospel comes and he presents Jesus as the one who has been sent to set the world right, to restore all of creation, its created purpose, to redeem God's people into relationship with him. And the fact that Jesus has authority over every aspect of fallen creation gives us hope. He's the anchor of our souls. He is our only hope, and he's the one who came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Do you know how far that is? That's everywhere. And he came to accomplish that. And and the fact that he's come, and the fact that that we've been united to him by faith and and given his spirit, it transforms for the believer our present experiences. It transforms how we view life in a fallen world. Because of Christ, we, we have hope. Christian, in the midst of disease and death and suffering, we have hope. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, let let me encourage you, take heart. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what lies ahead for you. But if you're a Christian, you have hope. You have reason to rejoice. Christ has died, been buried, and has been raised according to the Scriptures, which changes how we live here and now. So we can face adversity, brother, sister. I mean, let's let's not deceive ourselves. Sometimes we still hear the words, your daughter is dead, don't we? This doesn't teach us, well, if you follow Jesus, you have no pain and suffering. You don't lose a daughter. You don't get a disease. That's not what this teaches. This life in a fallen world, we're not exempt from suffering and sorrow. Sometimes we still hear the words, the the chemo isn't working. We still hear those, but as believers, as we face suffering, we do so with hope because Christ has authority and he has authority over sin and death. And so as believers, we know that all death is temporary. If you're a follower of Christ, the day will come when, when you'll close your eyes in death. But as a follower of Christ, the only death you'll ever experience is temporary. Is that good news? Right? I, I know in, in just the, the few months here getting to know you, I, it's a joy been getting to, having been getting to know the, the older members here and and, and it seems, right, the Lord could take me whenever he wants, but it seems like you're closer to meeting him than me. And you are an example of hope, right? What, what better message for me to proclaim is there's hope. Death is not the end, right? I, I will be at a WMU meeting again once you're all gone, right? There's hope. This morning, there, there's hope because Christ has been raised. Faith is able to hold on in the face of death, knowing that God has conquered death in the resurrection of Christ. And so, Christian, be encouraged today. Rejoice that Christ has been raised. We can face life in a fallen world with hope. And then lastly, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. If you're not trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life, if that's not you, I can do nothing else than proclaim to you that this Christ, the the man that you've encountered in the Scriptures, the man whose actions you've read about, whose words and teachings you've heard, this man has been raised, and he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And this man, 
though he was mocked as the king of the Jews, this man said he was the king of the Jews. That's what they said when they crucified him, though he was mocked. Friend, the reality is that he is not only king of the Jews, he is king over all. And this man, this resurrected Lord, deserves your worship. Whether you know it or not, he deserves every ounce of worship and honor and praise that you could offer. He's worthy of it. He demands your allegiance. And this morning, he offers you hope. Maybe you've had a, maybe you've had a rotten life. Maybe things aren't as you thought they would. Maybe your marriage has failed or is it failing. Maybe, maybe, maybe you, you consider yourself not successful. There's hope. There's hope. Life in a fallen world offers hope when you turn to Christ. He's king over all. He demands your worship. He offers you hope this morning. He offers you the free forgiveness of your sins. He offers you an anchor in the midst of this stormy world. And so my simple question is, would you trust him this morning? Would, would you know his peace this morning? Would, would you turn from your sins and trust in Christ? I'd be, we're about to sing a song. I'd be happy to talk with you during this song. If, if you want to come forward, I'll be standing right here. I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards. If you're a guest, come introduce yourself, and I'd love to take you out to lunch and, and talk to you about these things. Or if, if someone brought you, if you're here with a friend or a family member, talk to them because there, there's nothing better for you to hear on this resurrection morning that Christ died for you and rose again for you and offers you hope this morning. So if you've never repented of your sins, put your faith in Christ. Today is your day. Let's pray.